The American Council of the Blind presents ACB Reports, a monthly news magazine containing topics of interest to people who are blind or have low vision. I'm Mike Duke. This month... Meet Bill Henderson and learn about his experiences as an elementary school principal. Welcome to ACB Reports for July 2012. It's time for the ACB Reports microphones to hit the road for the annual conference and convention of the American Council of the Blind. This year, that meeting will be held in Louisville, Kentucky from July the 7th through the 16th. While new information is being gathered from this event, ACB Reports is pleased to share the following interview courtesy of the Bay State Council of the Blind of Massachusetts. Their monthly radio show, The Council Connection, is produced and hosted by Steve and Marsha Dresser. Bill Henderson was a teacher and principal in the Boston public school system for 37 years. Since his retirement, he has written a book about his experiences and his philosophy of education. This interview with Bill Henderson aired on the Council Connection radio program for March. It has been edited to fit the time constraints of ACB reports. Why don't you start out just by telling a little bit about yourself? Okay, yes, I was born in 1950 in uh, Greenwich, Connecticut, and I went to elementary school there, and I did not know that I had a vision impairment. You know, when I was nine, I used glasses for a little bit of nearsightedness, but I was playing football and hockey and basketball, running around. Uh, When I was about 12, I think my parents suspected I was having some difficulties at night, and I went for an eye exam, and the doctor thought that I might have RP. And I was told then that it was probably something that wasn't going to bother me until I was much older, like in my 60s, they said. Mm-hmm. And they'd have something to take care of it, not to worry. But they did tell me that I probably wasn't going to be able to um, play uh, professional football, which was dashing to me at the time because my dream was to be a quarterback. But I continued playing football, and I was a quarterback, but... um the doctor said to me for high school, I didn't think it was a good idea. So then I joined a cross-country and tennis team and actually was captain in both and did very well. So my vision was quite good. I got a license, but I knew I had some difficulties seeing at night. Did you drive at night at all? I drove at night only um, one time when my brother had had too much to drink. And uh-huh. I felt we were safe with him, but basically I avoided it. I think the complication then is when I went out dating, I often had to arrange double dates because sometimes I could drive in the summer, it's lighter out. I would drive, but it was later at night, somebody else could give me a ride. So basically, I went to college, went to Yale University, and really the first time that I had to deal openly with my vision impairment, when I was 20 years old, 1970, I went to Peru after a major earthquake. I was in an area where 70,000 people had been killed and no house was standing like in an area of over 200 miles. And I was cleaning rubble and building houses and distributing earthquake supplies, climbing up mountain cliffs with uh, pounds of food and medicine and blankets on our shoulders and on donkeys. At nighttime, there were no lights there. There was no electricity. And um, when you're walking on mountain cliffs and whatever light the moon or the stars had, I just could not see where I was walking. And if I walked the wrong way, I was going to fall into a whole lot of craters, holes, and off of cliffs. So I told these um, Peruvians, Puelo Verde Noche, which means I cannot see at night. And, you know, one guy took one arm, one took the other arm. We were off. Sometimes we would climb up to villages. It'd take us three, four, five hours to get there. 
I continued hiking, and, and sometimes a person in front of me was glad to uh, let me hold on to their shoulder going down mountain cliffs because he gave me some extra of their weight to carry back because they were tired. It was a great experience, lovely, kind, um, helping people. And the first place I had to admit that I couldn't see, I mean, there was no pretending. Then I went back to college, and um, first year out of college, worked in a stride-ride shoe factory unloading trucks, lived in the South End, and uh, met my wife Margie in the South End, did a little bit of community organizing. What brought you to Boston? My grandparents lived here, and after I graduated from school, somebody that I met in Peru, someone from Boston, we became friends. And I came up here, and she lived in a house with a lot of people in the South End who were doing some community organizing work with, with the Hispanic community. And that's where I went to earn money, worked in a shoe factory, and I worked with some of the Latinos helping teaching English. I come that summer, I also, after I graduated, was helping my grandparents out. My grandfather had a stroke. And I got a teaching job in Boston because I spoke Spanish. And I had done a little bit of education work. I wasn't fully certified. And I was the third teacher that year they had hired at the McCormick School. Two other teachers in September had come and said this was too much for them. And wow. they It was a challenging group of um, about 30 kids, fourth and fifth grade. A third of the kids spoke just Spanish. A third spoke Spanish and English. And a third spoke um, Spanish and English, but only read it and wrote in English. So it was you know, challenging to teach the diversity of language needs there. Absolutely. So, at the end of my first year, my parents said, oh, they got this new test. You should go get a test for RP. And after a day long of testing, doctor invited me and my wife into his chambers, and he said, I think you're going to lose all your vision in the next 5 to 15 years. And I told him I was a teacher. And then he asked me if I liked my job. When I was teaching middle school, it was you know, a challenging group of kids. I said, well, I like it most of the time, I think. If you're a middle school teacher and say you like everything about it and all the time, they might recommend you see another kind of doctor. But, <laughs> That's uh, right. At any rate, um, he told me, I think you should get out of education. So that was my first advice. And I kind of was like angry and denial. I thought the doctor was a jerk. Over the next seven years, my vision did deteriorate slowly. Back then, we used mimeograph machines, and if you did multiple copies, they got kind of light and faded. Right. Or if kids didn't write down hard with their pencil, it was harder for me to read what some of the kids wrote. Uh, when I was writing on the chalkboard, sometimes I wrote over what I'd already written, and when I was escorting kids around the school, I was fine watching them, but I found myself bumping into things more. So I was losing some peripheral vision. So I'd been to an um, eye specialist. I didn't want to go back to him, but I needed some advice, so I figured... I'd go to an education expert, you know, because I'd now been working in the system seven, eight years. I was coaching the track teams for the school, involved with student council, teaching different subjects. Our school had been involved with a major desegregation effort, and I was involved in that. It was going relatively well. This was a deputy superintendent, and I told him I had RP and I might be losing my vision. Then I asked him if he had any advice what someone who was going blind might be able to do in the Boston Public Schools. The guy thought for a while. He wasn't sure. But then he said, have you been working in Boston for seven years? I said, yes, I had. And then he told me, well, hey, you qualify for disability retirement. Gee. So those were the first two folks who had um, wow. given me advice. And I will admit that I felt angry, depressed, oh, yes. and had my doubts, and maybe they're right, maybe I can't be a teacher, maybe I'm not going to work, but when you're 30, 31 years old, 
and you have three little kids and you feel healthy and you're contributing, it didn't make sense in my gut. Of course. Isn't it and sad that's that when I um, finally connected with the experts I probably should have met in the first place, I heard about a group called the Vision Foundation and um, called up and they told me there was a self-help group in Boston. I figured reluctantly I would go, you know, because I didn't want to admit that my vision was getting worse, but I went. And it was great. In the book, I say it was an eye-opener because I met blind folks that were involved in all different walks of life. You know, some were teachers, one worked in a prison, one worked in a manufacturing plant, one was fixing bicycles, one was on disability, and a couple were in school. They seemed like they were having fun, life was going on. So that was my connection to the um, blindness community. From then, I did go to a couple of um, Bay State Council meetings. I also met some friends who were involved with the Massachusetts NFB, and I have tremendous respect for the blind leaders in Massachusetts, both of the Bay State Council and of the NFB. Oh, I agree. Their leadership, um, their struggles, and in some way um, paving the path for others. David Tiki, for example, was yes. the first teacher in uh, Massachusetts, and that was important because there was a time you couldn't work in a public school in general education if you were blind. I had that problem graduating myself. I was certified as an elementary teacher, and they told me, forget it. Yeah, they just didn't let it happen. Nope, that's right. In fact, I remember on the certification form back in the 70s, said, do you have a handicapping condition which affects your ability to perform the job? And I put down no. I also put down no. <laughs> so, you know, for a number of reasons, I was hiding it professionally. I needed to. And I think, you know, from those contacts I started, I became a consumer. I'm grateful for the Mass Commission for the Blind, and I got a caseworker that came out with me. I started using the Perkins Library because I had been reading less and less, and I just started reading more and more. You know, I could read now doing the dishes and gardening. Exactly. So that was great. I got some mobility instruction through the Carroll Center, got some technology support through the Carroll Center. In my late 30s, I started learning Braille. I did a correspondence course with Hadley, but then I also got some help from the Commission for Vine. A funny story, when I became principal in 1989, and I was getting some Braille instruction from folks from the Commission, they would come to the school after school hours. One time, the fellow came into the school with a cane, so these are now my third-grade kids waiting by the front door. Their parents were, like, picking them up, and they see this guy coming in. He says hello. They say hello. Other folks would see me with a white cane say, you know, do you work? Can you do this? Or, you know, And so these kids said to him, hey, sir, in what school are you the principal? That's a great story. I read that in the book. That was fabulous. And, but <laughs> it just shows you yep. how quickly the stereotypes can yep. These kids thought, if you're using a white cane, you know, and you're learning Braille, you must be an <laughs> elementary principal. That's great. And I want to say, you know, there was some struggle and challenges along the way, but it had not been for other blind folks for their solidarity and support and also the support through all of our blind agencies. I did learn and study Braille and I use Braille. I, I am not as quick in Braille I mean, when I use JAWS, which is really hard because the principal, I was busy. I just didn't have time to go take classes. And there was all this stuff that we were getting and I just said, I need to get by. Just show me how to do email. Just show me how to do word processing. You know, I learned this latent stylus, and I could do the diamond tape, so I labeled the teacher's mailboxes so I could put their notes in them quickly. I labeled some files, you know, CDs, 
And I enjoyed reading the syndicated column weekly from National Press and also got some print Braille books from them. I do use Braille regularly, but I do the vast majority of my reading digitally, you know, Newsline. Oh, sure. The new digital players, the Victor Readers. So, but you could, you could use the print Braille books to read to your students, I can which use the is print wonderful. Braille, and now I have two grandsons, so I, oh. I can use that with them also. So, see, we can't do our jobs without Braille, though, because even though you did a lot of your reading with JAWS, you still labeled the mailboxes, yeah, you know, and wrote yeah, notes. No you had a Braille light. The, you, the, the Braille was supportive for yes. me in doing my work. For the email, and I put that JAWS up very fast. Everybody could hear what I was reading and writing, but nobody could understand it. Nobody could understand it, that's right. <laughs> yeah. And the kids loved it. In fact, I, you know, I had kids coming up to the office sometimes because they were punished and sometimes for good reasons or doing errands. So they all wanted to play on my computer, do some writing, and listen to it. You know, I'd say their names. But I would only let them do it when they were up to the office for good reasons. So Didn't how- want to give them uh, positive reinforcement for negative behavior. Absolutely so, not. And, and the other thing is that, um, you know, I dealt with a lot in schools, you know, kids who struggle with literacy, most of whom have weaker educational supports, either at home or also in the early grades, and clearly kids with dyslexia and print disabilities. You know, it's hard for kids who struggle with decoding and print. And sometimes they get frustrated and don't try as hard and maybe get in trouble. So, you know, sometimes I'd get these kids coming up to the office with me and they'd be complaining, I can't do this. I say, hey, you can read that book a lot better than I can. You spell the letters, I'll help you with the word. And then I was using kids to help me read. And then probably in the later 90s, of course, I knew the stuff from Perkins was available for kids with learning disabilities because, you know, recording for the blind became recording for the blind and dyslexic. Yes. But the reality is that school systems and parents of kids with learning disabilities either weren't aware or in some cases did not think that kids with learning disabilities, because they could read some, they just work harder, try harder, and it'll go away. And some kids with minor reading disabilities, you can overcome it and it goes away. But for most, they're not going to have the same fluency. So the Kurzweil equipment, which was, you know, invented for blind folks, became a huge resource for kids with learning disabilities. And so we, in our school, at one point had 25 Kurzweil licenses. That way they could be in any room because our school had a third of our kids had disabilities. The school where I went to, the O'Hearn, was a regular elementary school and academically on the lower average side and not that popular. And parents had advocated for the mayor, city council leaders, and school committee that there be a school where kids with significant disabilities could be included. Because up until that time, kids particularly with um, autism, Down syndrome, cerebral palsy, spina bifida, multiple disabilities, they weren't included in Boston schools. There were a few exceptions of kids who were exceptionally advanced, might go through, but most kids were either not in school, private programs, or in separate wings of schools. So it all started with parent advocacy. Very, very strong parent advocacy and lobbying. And it would not have happened in 1989 without that parent advocacy. In fact, I find that around the country in most districts where the best inclusion programs are where there has been strong advocacy by parents. Obviously, you need professionals who are committed and competent to carry that out. Even today, in very good, high-quality school systems, the quality and, and whether or not Inclusion is the first consideration for students with disabilities, which is the law. It does, you know, there's still a need for private placements and substantially separate classrooms and 
and resource rooms, learning centers, but the law is that the first consideration should be the general education classroom with supports. Yes. That still does not happen in a lot of situations. It doesn't. I'm I'm a teacher of visually impaired students, and I go to different school systems, and boy, what a difference. Some just says, oh, you know, he's Down syndrome, he's got to go here, or he's blind, and he's got to go over there. And I'm not saying that some of kids with disabilities would not be and, and are served better in more restrictive settings. Absolutely. But how do you know that when the kids are three, four, and five if you don't try it? And the other thing is people would try it, but they wouldn't provide any support. So right. we were really strong and advocated and say, look, we know how much money you're spending on kids with disabilities. We want the same amount of money. So like in Boston right now, a general ed student costs about $6,000 a kid. A kid with significant disabilities costs about 20000 So, you know, if we have 20 kids with significant disabilities, our school has 20 times 20, give us 400000 So it's budget neutral. And the budget directors never argue with me because, in fact, we would save the money. That doesn't include the transportation costs for them to go to schools that are much farther away. And, you know, there are a whole lot of other costs. So we didn't do inclusion to save money, but we had to save that we could be cost-effective. And then we hustled for additional resources and supports um, from our parents, from the community, from businesses, from universities. So, you know, we're always hustling. And part of the hustle was getting technology because, as we know, for blind folks, you can't say, oh, we have computer class three times a week. That's when you get to use JAWS. That's ridiculous. It is. That's what is still the case for many kids with learning disabilities. They're in classrooms without the computer, and then they say, well, we'll give them the accommodation. We'll give them the universal design when they go to computer class. So we disbanded our computer room and put two to four computers in every class. And that technology allows much more access to digital text and to other differentiated materials that allow kids of a range of abilities to do well. So in every one of our classrooms in school with, you know, 23, 24 kids, seven or eight would have an IEP, four or five would have significant issues, and four or five would have minor issues. But for all of them, and for all the general ed kids, technology was available to them as a tool. What a great experience for all the kids, because you had so many kids with disabilities in each class. So it just became the norm. Yes. The kids presumed that there'd be kids with wheelchairs and kids with white canes and nonverbal kids and we had some kids with multiple disabilities who had graduated from our school at age 12 or 13. They'd be developmentally one, two, or three years. So we had some very low-functioning kids. We also had kids with disabilities who were our top students, you know, a yes. boy with um, autism, was more Asperger's-like, but a little mixed bag. And the school department officials told the parents he couldn't be included. He ended up having getting top academic honors and being recognized at Faneuil Hall. You know, so we had blind kids that were exceptionally strong and... One of our kids with osteosis genesis imperfecta, I mean, it's a very challenging disability, a very brittle bones. We had two kids with that condition, one who was very advanced and one who was uh, very low-functioning. So I think the kids learned not to generalize. The kids saw the people as kids, you know, this is uh, Victoria. She uh, has a baby sister. She likes to read. She has fun in science class. She likes vanilla ice cream, and she drives a cool electric wheelchair. So the disability became secondary. And I'm not one of these people that believes in total independence as a myth, and I know it's important for blind folks to do as much as we can for each other, but I'm not shy about asking for help. On the other hand, 
I know that I'm expected also to give and be helpful. Exactly. At home, at work, and in the community. So it was okay for a kid with a disability to need help, you know, in a wheelchair. Somebody else opened the door for him or finding things or checking on a spelling of a word. But it was also expected that they were to work hard and they were to be helpful. We had a blind kid, and some kids helped him finding different things, but he was a great reader, and he helped other kids with their spelling and with their reading. Some of our kids in wheelchairs were advanced students, and they'd help others solve math problems while somebody outside would be helping them when they're playing in a kickball game. I would love to have gone to your school, Bill, to the Ohern. Yeah, it's a fun place and something you can still visit. So it became like almost a community, and... um, we had so many kids with needs because we had three, four, and five-year-old kids in our school, just getting the kids off the buses to their classroom. So we had lots of peer helpers. In addition to the work the kids did helping out in their classrooms, our third, fourth, and fifth graders had to help out uh, one morning a week uh, during arrival time. Oh, that's great. 15 minutes. It was, it was wow. quick. And then during their lunch and recess time, we didn't force them the lunch recess, but over 90% of kids gave up a recess, and at lunchtime, they still got to eat, but... You know, helping with recycling, sitting at the main office, answering the phone right. when the sector is on lunch break. Or being with a person, one of the kids with brittle bones can't really go out for a recess and, and, and play, obviously. Right. Um, well, actually, we, we let one go out, but he had to be in an area where there weren't balls going on. And so there were a couple of days that kids played with Nerf and softballs, and she stayed over on one side, and we kept an eye on things. But there were other days that she went to a class with younger kids and helped out at that same time. Well, that's and, great. But she didn't do it alone. She went with some friends who didn't have disabilities. The kids with and without disabilities were expected to go and help other people. And I think that's really important because very often when they talk about peer tutoring around kids with disabilities, the focus is only on how people are helping the handicapped. You know, yes. You know, I said, no, everybody needs to be helpful. And when we had kids with significant issues who were working with the OT and the PT, who I used to run the office supplies and pass out pencils and papers and catalog things. Again, they had adults with them, but it was a good teaching experience for them. They had to do language when they went to classrooms. They had to count and they had to distribute, and it was a lot of fine motor control stuff. So it was a very dedicated and skillful group of staff overall. We did a lot of ongoing professional development, always had room for improvements, and um, the folks that didn't have the commitment or didn't work out, they either left voluntarily or we um, evaluated them so they would look for other pastures. It was a wonderful model, Bill. The whole thing relied on tremendous coordination, having a regular ed teacher and a special ed teacher in the class and some paraprofessionals when needed. And the nurse was more involved than usual you oh, know, the in your school. Very hands-on, very all over the place. So the kids were used to seeing all this stuff and equipment. It was just like no big deal. It was very good for siblings who had kids with significant disabilities because very often siblings can feel embarrassed. Oh, my, my brother's got Down syndrome or he's into that, you know. And, they, and then these kids, you know, hey, Johnny, how you doing? And, oh, you're Johnny's brother. He's a great kid, blah, blah, blah. You know, so it kind of was validating and felt natural for kids. Also important in schools, it's not just the vibes in the community but you have to do well academically. And we took academics seriously, and so our commitment is that having kids with disabilities, the students would do as well or better as if they were kids without disabilities. And our school went from being near the bottom of 80 elementary schools and test scores 
to consistently being near the top. And then the school also became more popular because parents have choice in Boston, and some would say, oh, if you have those kids with disabilities, particularly kids with intellectual disabilities, and maybe you know, the bright kids' parents won't want them to be there. But on the contrary, and we had great family involvement and support. Clearly, our parents of kids with disabilities, they were strong advocates because in many cases they had to advocate to get their kids to be considered for general education, and they had to fight for that. But also the parents of the general ed students were in our school because they wanted an inclusive school, and the parents took that culture and that spirit, and they became the leaders. It was important to have parent leadership, staff leadership, student leadership, and we talked about Inclusion, we were in an inclusive school ethnically, linguistically, but also by ability, and we celebrated that. There's so many wonderful examples of this in the book, which I'm sure everyone's going to go out and read now after hearing you. It was important for me, because sometimes you read stories about education, and it's either all data and dry, or it's all la-la, everybody lived happily every after, and all they do is sing kumbaya, and and everything (laughs) was wonderful. So I tried to share a lot of situations, a lot of challenges. Yes, you did. Most were successful, but there were clearly some setbacks. So what gave you the idea to write the book, Bill? First of all, I couldn't have done it when I was principal because I was too busy. I retired in 2009 and had much more time. You know, I'd been in education in Boston Public Schools 36 years straight. For the first time, I have a little more flexibility. Get to sit down for lunch, you know, and not eat it standing up and on the fly. I also thought it was important to tell the story from the perspective of the fact that very often people say that a school does well in spite of the kids with disabilities, or the teacher did a good job despite the fact that she has a disability Mm -hmm. or that she's blind, or in spite of the fact that he was in a wheelchair. So I'm going to say, hey, I think our school did better because of the disabilities and because of how we dealt with them, because of how I dealt with my blindness, and because how the kids with disabilities dealt with themselves how they interacted with others, and how teachers had to change teaching and learning, having kids with a range of abilities. I think that invigorated, uh, refreshed, and embellished teaching and learning for everybody. And so that's the slant of the book. I mean, some people said, how come you talk mostly about the kids with disabilities? I said, because I wanted to highlight how it was because of the kids with disabilities that our school got so much stronger, better academically, in the arts, popularity, social interaction, again, with growth areas. And the, and and the, and the final comes. reason is when you work at a place for 20 years, and these are tough times economically. I mean, most people are struggling. And um, in public education, we're expected to do more with fewer resources. And I was always hustling when I was there. So I also figured I'd write the book, and then whatever monies I get, which aren't going to be a lot, but they're going to go to the school. Fabulous. And they named the school after me, so I'm kind of like... Um, expected, and I want to be involved, I continue to, you know, stay connected and get involved, but I'm not independently wealthy. doesn't mean I'm not continue to hustle for resources and supports and and clearly participate in the fundraising of activities, but I'm not able to contribute in the thousands of dollars which we need to raise on a yearly basis. So the book is a small effort. People can get it on loan for free from um, Perkins. Um, If you have a friend who is a teacher and, and reads print, I encourage people to get it from Amazon or Harvard Education Press. And if people want their own audio copy and an MP3 player, they can go to the Harvard Education Press website 
and it can be downloaded. It's not a super easy website, but I know blind folks who have done it. Well, Bill, thank you so much for being on with me. Um, It's been fabulous, and I really appreciate it. And I appreciate all the work you folks do, your leadership. It's really important that you are a great role model, not only your teacher, but you're um, spreading the good news and giving back and supporting others of us, so I'm very grateful. Bill Henderson's book is entitled The Blind Advantage, How Going Blind Made Me a Better Principal and How Including Children with Disabilities Made Our School Better for Everyone. ACB Reports extends special thanks to the Bay State Council of the Blind and the Council Connection for the use of this material. You've been listening to ACB Reports, heard on radio information services nationwide on side four of the Braille Forum cassette edition and throughout the world on acbradio.org. ACB Reports is produced at Radio Reading Service of Mississippi, a service of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Send suggestions and comments about this program to reports at acbradio.org. Contact the American Council of the Blind online at acb.org or phone 800-424-8666. Thanks for listening, and please join us again next month for another ACB Reports.